I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast about brilliant books about music. Cult classics, page turners, pop boilers, overlooked mainstream gems, indie curios and surprising favourites. I'm your dutiful obliging host, Jude Rogers, art and culture journalist and author of a white rabbit title, The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. And I'm delighted to introduce today's guest. He's a Haywards Heath native and survivor, graduate of the Worcester Vale Factory, the Barlett School of Architecture and the band Jeff, frontman and songwriter for 26 of the last 33 years, I think, with the band Suede, and author of two books that document his life before that band and then his life with them. 2018's Cold Black Mornings and 2019's Afternoon with the Blinds Drawn. A big neon lit glittering welcome to Brett Anderson. Hello, Brett. How are you? I'm very well, Jude. I can't. That's a, that was a lovely uh, introduction. Um, <laughs> Glad I mentioned the factory. Don't, yeah, I, I don't think that anyone's at Worcester Valve's ever been quite as. Uh, it's lauded as that. It certainly, <laughs> wasn't, from... it certainly wasn't very glamorous, I can tell you that. <laughs> I don't know, kind of just going back over your, your book recently, that stuck out to me. Um, how's your day been so far? Um, slightly weird, kind of like cancelled trains and uh, struggling through sweaty London, but um, kind of lovely because the sun is here and I'm a bit of a sun worshipper and when when it's sunny, it may, I, I just have a very physical, happy feeling, so I'm okay oh, today. Stuff. Yes. Good stuff. Just a uh, mess of London and running about sounds very, uh, very much in your ballpark. Um, yeah, I kind of like it both. I mean, you know, I'm kind of live between the countryside and London, and it's I quite like the kind of the duality of that. I quite like the kind of extremity and the calm of the countryside, and I like the kind of like the bustle of London. Those two cliches sort of thrown <laughs> together. Now, we're obviously speaking to you today um, in the run up to a new album, um, Suede's ninth. Am I right? Mm, um, yeah, ninth. Auto fiction. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very, you know, suitable title for a, for a book's mm. podcast, of course, mm. and a big tour. Um, mm. But you took today's book with you on a short European tour I did, this yeah. summer. Yeah. And you were emailing me and taking notes as you went, which I really mm. loved. Um, how are you as a reader these days? Yeah, I read a lot. I mean, I read a lot on tour. I mean, the invention of the, of the, of the Kindle has been kind of revolutionary to me for being a, a, a sort of working musician. I used to, when I went on tour, I used to take two suitcases, one with pants and socks and the other one full of full of, full of paperbacks. And now I can just <laughs> take one suitcase and a little thing. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, probably one of these people that people in the book industry despise, but I, I read everything on my Kindle now because it's just much more convenient. So guilty. If that makes me. Feel <laughs> um, what, what do I read? I, I read a lot of. I, I read. I, I sort of tend to read two things. I, I read sort of nonfiction in the morning, and fiction at night. I can't. I can't read. I have to read fiction at night. It kind of. It. It, it kind of quiets me down. Um, I. I can never quite sort of understand people that my wife sits there and reads the newspaper at night, and I, I just kind of like my brain would be too active to do that sort of thing. So, I like to get. I like to sort of lose myself in something 
um yes a, a, a good a, a good ripping yarn in the evening <laughs> before i go to sleep well hopefully go to sleep yeah but um i really enjoyed reading this book and i'd never i'm i'm i'm, I'm ashamed to say i'd never heard of it before um starlust um and you recommended it and i kind of like flicked through it and thought oh that looks looks actually looks quite interesting um I was going to say, it's not the kind of book you would um, use for your, you know, late at night calming down reading. No, certainly not. <laughs> and it's kind of, it's an interesting book because it's not a, a kind of, I found it, I found it absolutely great in lots of ways. And sometimes I found it a bit boring and mundane. And I don't necessarily mean that as a kind of criticism of the book. I'm not kind of trying to critique the book. It's just an interesting book in that it doesn't follow a narrative. It's mm. just, it's a sort of a, a collection of, of, people's experiences being obsessed with with mainly kind of 80s pop stars well we'll go into it in a bit of more detail in a moment introduce it properly for people who haven't heard of it um but um before we probably talk about it i have my three rapid fire questions they're kind of uh the smash hits bit at the beginning obviously if you're ready if you're primed and ready um who was the first musical artist you loved and be honest, you know, if it was uh, Black Lace, you know, something like that. Oh, something. God. Well, I mean, there's sort of, sort of vague stories of, of me kind of jumping around the room to sort of, you know, Elton John and stuff like that when I was about four and things like that. But I don't know really if that's the, if, if things like that were the, people like that were the first music I loved. They were just a kind of toddler's response to the energy of pop music. <laughs> The first, the first, the first band, and this—I I don't mean, mean for this to sound too cool for school, but the first band that were really my band that said something to me, sort of, you know, were the Sex Pistols. Really, that they were, the, they were, they were the first band that really sort of spoke to me about. Um, I don't know. My my father was really into classical music, obsessively into classical music, and he inhabited this very sort of like. Um, Victorian world of sort of you know Hector Berlioz and Franz Liszt and kind of like purple sort of smoking jackets and he aspired towards some sort of uh, um, fantasy you know some some sort of some sort of like you know Virginia Woolf style kind of <laughs> William Morris fantasy kind of thing and obviously it's the duty of every generation to trash the mm. music musical taste of their parents and any generation that doesn't do that is doing something wrong and and I despised his music with every bone in my body <laughs> and gravitated towards the p- exact polar opposite which was punk you know and I was still I was still too uh, still quite young really to you know punk happened when I was about 10 so I kind of got the arse end of it but the pistols mm. were my first real love I was into other bands like crass and discharge and all these kind of like odd sort of bands on the periphery of punk as well but the pistols were my first uh love yeah yeah you write about your dad so well in um cold black mornings you know the you can see the character he was and how that uh shaped you um who was the first writer on music that you loved and this could be a journalist or an author or anyone else you feel fits that description. Yeah, I think that's a really hard one to to, to answer, and and I couldn't really come up with any spe- sort of specific names. I, I, all I could say was, um, music writing for me was 
I, I, I lived in the pages of 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 the, the weekly music press in the, in the eighties. Um, you know, the enemy, Melody Maker, and Sounds when it's when they all still existed. They they were kind of like the bible. But I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't really. I didn't sort of follow writers. I just sort of I I, I didn't have that kind of awareness of specific writers so i suppose a whole whole load of them like people like tony parsons and julie birchill and, and paul morley and simon reynolds and all those kind of people from that era even though i wasn't aware that i was reading them they were all kind of like shaping my thoughts about music and i think for a whole generation of people that the, the the inkies as they were called were were more like a bible than a, than a magazine they kind of like they 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 gave you a kind of a blueprint for life in a way mm. um and i think their passing is kind of regrettable in lots of ways i think it's quite sad i think it's it it, it, it it's there's been a, a massive change in the, the dynamics of the music business because we don't have the inkies anymore because we don't have that urgent um fiery debate about music anymore it feels to me that 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 things have become much more much too polite, <laughs> and I like that about the about the about the Inkies, um, about the enemy and the melody maker sort of fighting each other and and slagging each other off. It kind of had a, it gave the whole thing an energy, which I, yeah. which, I which I feel as though we lack these days. Maybe for maybe it's a, you know it's a different world and you have to accept it. But I kind of I like something. I sort of like the gladiatorial nature of all that. So yeah. that's a long answer. But the, but the music press of the eighties, I suppose. Music press of the eighties. Um, and what was the first music book you loved? First one that I remember really enjoying was Julian Cope's book Head On. Oh yeah. Yeah, I loved that. There was there was something, and and. and I, I kind of I like the teardrop explodes and everything. But I wasn't like the world's hugest fan or anything. I, for some reason, I came across it, and there was a kind of an honesty and a and a sort of passion to it that I really connected with. I thought it was it was it was quite beautiful. Fantastic, good recommendations. Um, now on to today's book, um, mm. which I have to say, yeah, I recommended this to you, and it's one I first encountered in the form of a suitably tatty original copy. Yeah, with a black and neon pink cover in the British Library some years ago. Um, it's from 1985, and its frequently mucky material is distilled from 350 hours of interviews, 20 hours of answer phone messages, over 400 written accounts from questionnaires, diaries, and dream journals, and more than 40,000 letters sent to pop stars and the Sun's showbiz column. Um, it's called Starlust: The Secret Fantasies of Fans. Originally credited to Fred and Judy Vermorel, um, was reissued in 2011, um, credited just, just to Fred. Now, Brett, um, I suggested this book to you as someone who has encountered their fair share of fans of all stripes mm. over the years. Um, and also, you said you were really interested in the psychology of fandom. It was written in 1985 as well, when pop was exploding. You know, MTV was in the ascendant. Um, the importance of imagery was on the up. I thought I'd stop asking you what kind of fan you were at that period in 1985. You know, you're still quite young then. Yeah. No, but I mean, that's that's the, one of the things that it made me reflect upon. Um, I think every every sort of artist, successful musician, whatever you want to call them, has at one point been a fan. And so they know that feeling. They know, they know what they're doing to their audience in a, in a way. I think you have to have felt it in order to 
to kind of um to to want to this is form of kind of masochism stroke sadism i don't know um in 1985 i was a huge smiths fan that was my band in the mid 80s and it was sort of towards the end of their career when they were just about to split up and stuff but yeah very uh very very obsessed with with smiths they were kind of my sort of i suppose my sort of second or third musical love you know mm. Um, if the Pistols were the first, they were sort of like uh, uh, quite up there quite soon after the Pistols. Um, what was so how I? old are you then? I, God, 85, I suppose. I was um, I was a teenager, wasn't so I? late I was teens. 18 or something like that. I was just, sort of just going to university. So it was it was exactly that. I, I ended up going to Manchester University because it was a sort of almost like a homage to bands from Manchester. You know, you make these rash kind of like decisions. In, in, you know, there's no other reason that I went to Manchester apart from the fact that I like the Smiths and the Fall and Joy Division you know it's kind of you know you just I didn't have no one no one kind of like I didn't have anyone to guide me and say maybe you shouldn't do that because it's you know not good for your whatever career you're pursuing um so yeah I don't know I kind of I suppose a, yeah you know the the typical sort of slightly romantic floppy bookish sort of teenager that's into the you know it's probably a very typical smiths fan yeah but they Could did ask- I thought they were amazing for for a few years they were were made some incredible music um and which is still very very powerful can i ask you about your first impressions of this book you know i was slightly nervous giving you a book like this because yeah. it can go from you know it's something it can be quite intense obviously it can be quite filthy it can be yeah. um they're quite frightening at points as well. Yeah, yeah. No, well, it's almost like a scrapbook, isn't it? It's a sort of like it's it's not it doesn't follow a narrative. So that's the first thing I thought about it was that that it was kind of quite not difficult to follow, but you just have to get your head into a different place. You're not sort of like following a story that 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 has an end point and a you know midpoint and you know. A, whatever you're just f- sort of following a series of thoughts aren't you and a series of accounts by people of varying degrees of sanity and um the yeah i mean there were some quite out there ones weren't there there was that there was one guy that was sort of bowie obsessive that was that seemed to be kind of yeah a bit out there and i, and I to be honest with you some of them i found fascinating and some of them i skimmed because I didn't find all of them utterly compelling, but the ones that I did find compelling were, in- were incredible. Which ones did you find compelling? Um, I'm um, guessing the Bowie one might be the one that's all written in capital letters. And yeah, that was UFOs. a bit, I, I sort of sort of switched off a bit with that. I, I found the, the whole Barry Manilow thing quite interesting. Actually. Yes. Can you tell um, us a bit about that? <laughs> yeah, I suppose there's a, there's a kind of odd mismatch between the kind of sex god that the fans seem to view him as and the this kind of very safe kind of um sort of figure that i've always seen him as do you know what i mean he's always been a bit of a kind of like a a sort of housewives kind of well not anymore but you know in, in the 70s he was like kind of like this housewives sort of the housewife's choice terry wogan used to play him and stuff like that I remember when, you know when, when radio 2 was the old radio 2 you know it was very easy listening um so that was quite kind of quite an interesting thing having, having reading all of these 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 incredibly sort of sort of um 
yeah, kind of crazy sexual fantasies about Barry Manilow. That was quite <laughs> amused me for a while. A lot of frustrated I, married women. Um, yeah, there was one who spent Christmas Day with him because her husband was a travelling salesman and was away. And exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, she's just as him and Barry on the telly, and um... yeah, and their little coterie, they're, and they're you know they're, they're sort of conversations with each other, and they're sort of letters to each other about kind of oh, did you see him on TV, and did you notice, you know, the, uh, no, the the way that they notice the details and read into the details as well. I thought that was really interesting. What kind of details distract you? I, I can't remember. There was something about the positioning of his piano and things like that. Oh, there was yes. almost a, a, a. There was almost. Is it, is it called de Clarenbo syndrome? I think there's a. There's a. There's a. Well, it is now. Um, <laughs> so there's a thing called de Clarenbo syndrome where 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 obsessives will um, read uh, um, incredibly sort of pertinent details into celebrity. What celebrities do. And there was a really famous one where. In the early 20th century, a woman fell in love with George V and used to stand outside Buckingham Palace and look at the ways in which the curtains were drawn and read those as signs that George V was signaling, signaling to her. And it's almost that point where the, where, where, where the obsession becomes unhealthy and drifts into mm. a kind of sort of slightly psychotic disorder but i don't want to i don't want to kind of start off on that in that tone because that's really interesting where it twists into something that's a bit unhealthy but on the whole i i i found all of these accounts kind of in a way kind of quite wonderful really Mm. there's a there's a there's a sort of tendency for 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 bands and people to, you know, artists or whatever, to be dismissive of of, of obsessive fans, and I, I don't want to come across like that at all. I think that I'm always really humbled by them. Actually, I think they're incredible people. They make so many sacrifices that I could never make. You know, I, we, I have fans that follow me all around the world and have families of their own and have, don't have much much money and fund all these trips all over the place, and it's just. It's 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 utterly humbling that they've sort of chosen me as the you know focal point of their whatever their attention and um I, I'm I'm always I always try to be respectful. It's it's not always easy when you're kind of rushing between things and you're exhausted and stuff like that. But I always try and give them the respect that they they deserve. So I don't want to kind of immediately sort of like start talking about the sort of psychotic nature of fans and go into this sort of Mark Chapman territory, even though that is all all fascinating. And I I guess it's all part of a spectrum, isn't it? And that is mentioned in the opening letter. Um, Yeah, I thought um, the introduction was really interesting. So this is by the Who's Pete Townsend. Um, I thought it was really revealing. So he says, um, this book at first glance is full of the fantasies of maniacs but it is really full of the wonderful dreams of people just like you and me, mm. which is you know, what you've been saying in many ways now. Um, and he talks about how we all need to have heroes or spiritual figures in our lives and how the pop star can occupy that role. Was that something that, you know, reading it, you thought of you know, your different experiences through the years? Obviously, you know, now, you know, you've had a long career. You, the way you're talking about fans now is, you know, is healthy and it's, you know, respectful, but when you first, you know, had that, obviously in the early days of Suede, you were trucking away for a long time and then suddenly it went from, you know, naught to a hundred very quickly. Yeah. And you must have gone from having people who liked you to having, you know, lots of obsessive fans. What was that period like? And did you think of that while reading the book? 
I did. Yeah, that that, that was. I mean, there've been various sort of like phases of my career and phases of my relationship with my audience. And in the early years, it was that was characterised by indifference because <laughs> I didn't have an audience. And then suddenly, kind of, you know, around 1992, we became successful, and 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 f- f- it became pretty crazy actually there was a there was a point where there where there was a sort of almost a mania that was happening at the gigs and there was there was some sort of crazed sort of um kind of dionysian (laughs) kind of rituals going on where i'd go and people would grab me and i'd get almost stripped and all these things and it was it was incredibly exciting moments what do you think that came from i thought you know there's something interesting in this book where um, Fred Vermeerl says later on, and I thought this was really fascinating um, about how you know consumerism is linked to fandom. Mm, um, yeah. Maybe you know you'd suddenly gone from you know not being covered in the music press to being on so many covers, famously of mm. magazines, and your your images and your interviews were everywhere, and it was sort of feeding this yeah because hunger in your fans, I guess. Yeah, you're you're you know whether we like it or not, we're a kind of product. And at your peak, when you're when you're very successful, your your product is being sort of, you know, very heavily advertised, isn't it? You know, you're on all these magazines, you're on the radio, suddenly you're in everyone's faces and people want to consume that product. Mm. And, and, and how do they consume that product? By listening to the music, by going to the gigs, by reacting to, to the thing. And it's this, there's a complicity in all this, the, the, the artists... Um, for me, the the the, the key um, phrase in this book was in was in the afterward the the afterward by by Fred Vermeerel. Sorry for pronouncing pronounce his name wrong. And he, he says I, I actually wrote it down because I thought it was really pertinent. He says pop is a frustration machine. The most fascinating aspect being the tension between the star's incitement of desire and the bureaucratic mm. apparatus erected to protect the stars from yes. the consequences of this incitement. So basically that boils down to this kind of like machinery that 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 creates um extremity and excitement and needs response to that but then tries to then tries to limit that response before yeah. the, before before the response becomes dangerous to the star. Yeah. It's a fascinating kind of like balancing act where you've kind of like you've got you you the, the the star is up there kind of basically prick teasing and saying, Come on, come on, have me, have me. And then you've got kind of like layers of security where the where the people can't actually it's like it's almost like a look but don't touch kind of element to it, isn't that? Absolutely, yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's it's a really fascinating kind of um uh, uh, dynamic where the artist is 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 putting themselves massively on display emotionally, physically, sexually, all of these things. Mm. And that's what struck me about it as well. Um, and you know, that's I remember reading the book when I was, you know, in my early twenties as a student and just being quite, you know, astounded by some of the letters. Yeah. Um, but I you know, I revisited it recently. Um I write about um, you know, my you know, whether you want to call it obsession or not, my fascination with Michael Stipe of R.E.M. when I was um, 14, 15, you know, he was my first entry point to that sort of feeling, that kind of fan connection. Yeah. You know, I find it really interesting about how the teenage brain at that point is 
um, developing very, very rapidly. And I spoke to a neuroscientist about how, you know, we're, our brains are t- teaching us to look at faces of people outside our families, you know, in a, as basic a sense as to, you know, broaden our gene pool, you know, how yeah. music fires a part of a brain connected to a sense of self and identity as well, which is mm-hmm. really interesting. And you can see in some of these letters, these are people who are desperate to find a sense of self and identity through artists when maybe their own lives are you know, some people say they're quite empty or meaningless or mm. boring or mundane. You know, it doesn't have to be you know, that their lives are terrible. It can be just their lives are, need a little bit more thrill and excitement. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's that thing where, you know, it's a well-documented well thing that, that people finding role models in, in stars and finding role models in musicians um, because they haven't got the role models at home sometimes, or they, you know, it's 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 not it's not it's not an unusual thing. And then I suppose you have to talk about the whole um, sort of secular religion nature of this, which yes. is really interesting. You know, what is it a coincidence that that sort of pop idolatry reached its point when kind of Christianity seemed to be kind of at its weakest you know in the when the 20th century when when, it, when everyone was becoming effectively non-religious or atheist or whatever or kind of like you know or certainly not kind of like practicing religion um is that a coincidence you know and i don't probably probably think it isn't i think there's that sort of thing where the the philosopher pascal that talked about mm. the, the concept of the god-shaped whole yes and the god-shaped whole being that being this idea that um God fulfills a role, and if God isn't there, something else will fulfill that role. And people need these kind of, I don't know, idols to 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 look up to. To they need these structures. They, we're we're a kind of hierarchical beings, aren't we? We're kind of you know we need, we need these hierarchies, and that's in. I'm not kind of in any way sort of saying whether it's good or bad but it's, that seems to seems to be part of the dynamic and i've, I've yeah. been sort of both sides of of that divide and i'm kind of quite aware of of that of that sort of that that sort of feverish frustration of being a fan myself do you know what i mean it's sort of yeah like, you know i don't i i kind of liked um pete townsend's tone in his in his in his in, in the forward because he 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 was very much sort of saying look you know we've all been there you know just just because he happens to be standing up on stage now it doesn't he doesn't sort of feel like he's in any way superior and i don't i don't think kind of like anyone that's that, that's been a fan does you know you know how all these people feel you're, you're kind of complicit in this kind of game almost it's a piece of fear yeah. you know yeah and he also says you know it's um it's good to know that human beings are capable of such passion, imagination and creativity. Yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to take through the book because um, the imagination and creativity, you know, it's just so wild through this. You know, some of these are, you know, you say about a God-shaped hole. Sometimes that God-shaped hole is filled by, you know, Cheryl Baker or yeah. Bruce Foxton. But um, there are people, you know, inventing alternative lives or alternative um situations obviously um what do you think about that um idea of you know fandom spurring creativity i think it, i think it more than it, more than spurs creativity i think it's it's part of the necessary machinery of making new pop music i don't think you can have kind of pop music created unless you have a whole sort of army of fans out there that sort of get why it's important so it's not just sort of like 
yes, yeah, sorry, creati- creativity, but it's 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 massively part of pop culture. I think it's a it's it's an essential element. It's the fuel to pop culture. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I thought one thing that was really interesting throughout this book, you know, you've got lots of people who are frustrated with their lives, you know. But there was almost the idea that however frustrated their lives were, they could see possibilities of liberation through pop stars Hmm. um, and what they represented. Um, I was wondering what you think about that as, um, you know, know, when you came along with Suede, you know, obviously you had a big, you know, youthful audience, but lots of people who could see maybe possibilities of other ways of living or expressions of you know, the world around them that were very honest and grimy and murky. Um, you know, people saw a different reality through Suede, really. Mm. Yeah, I think it's the job of a pop star to sort of be extraordinary and to sort of, you know, create a sort of... I, I always wanted to, wanted to sort of create a, 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 something of a fantasy, but something of, a, of an expression of reality as well. Um, you know, I always loved music that was that was very real, that was kind of like you know that was about the the, the tarmac streets and about the rain and and reflected those kind of like sort of somber everyday values, but somehow kind of turned those into something quite lovely. You know, it's the beauty of the everyday. I wanted to try and reflect, I suppose, that old cliche of the, the Oscar Wilde quote of lying in the gutter and looking at the stars. Yeah. Can, that, that it's, it's such a powerful quote because it seems to sum up so much about art. Um, the art is at its most powerful when it's at its most kind of like prosaic somehow. But also, crucially, you know, and I say this as somebody who, whenever I interview bands or artists who I loved in the 90s, I feel slightly, you know, embarrassed. <laughs> but, you know... It was exciting, you know, for yeah. teenage girls to see artists like you, know, you on stage or Jarvis Cocker singing about, you know, all facets of adult life. Um, yeah. What is that, you know, what is that attention like, especially, you know, that female attention when you're suddenly thrown into the spotlight? Um, I bet it's nice <laughs> in some way. Yeah, it's titillating, but uh, <laughs> and you, for, for, a, for, for a small amount of time, you kind of let yourself get carried away by it because it's so seductive that you can't not. And you've spent so mm. many years trying to achieve this that you just you have this sort of little sort of um, this sort of honeymoon period with fame, where you're kind of like you, you're suddenly you're suddenly allowed into this kind of like 
golden enclosure and it just feels so exciting and and before the kind of the the, the darkness seeps in almost <laughs> <laughs> so yeah for a while it, it's fun um and then it kind of goes a bit weird and you know I, i've had uh, uh, there was a kind of bit of suede mania that went on and then it kind of like went a bit odd and i became a bit of a recluse because there was mm. lots of people that i bump into that kind of didn't like me and it kind of fucks with your head in that way and the the the, the cocktail of drugs and money doesn't really help luckily i'm at a stage now with the whole thing where the only people that come up to me sort of a sort of used to remember what I do and and be kind of a respectful kind of thing yeah I don't kind of get a load of hassle I couldn't really go on public transport for 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 for, for a couple of decades because it was right. too uncomfortable kind of thing I can I can and I love public transport don't get me wrong I love riding the train. apart from when your trains are cancelled so to, to, yeah, to, today yeah. you didn't get you know hassled um... no 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 and it happens <laughs> very rarely and people are always very polite now so it's, it's kind of quite nice it's got to it's got to a nice stage I don't know but there is a there is a point where there's you go through various you know you're asking what it's like and you you, you go through various relationships with your with your quote unquote fame you know mm. it, it, it can it's a it's a prickly mistress and it, and, it, <laughs> and, it, and it and it kind of like sometimes it's wonderful and sometimes it's 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 horrific. And obviously you experienced, you know, I know a period where Suede weren't around. I know you were, you know, releasing your own music solo. You did the Tears mm. um, with Bernard Butler. Um, mm. But I was there at that Royal Arbor Hall gig in 2010 where you played um, a Teenage Cancer Trust gig. And yeah. it was just this rebirth. It was just mm. such an, that was, you know, that must have been quite powerful to see those fans who had, you know, grown with you yeah. these were fans who were original fans who'd grown with you yeah that, that was an amazing night actually and when whenever people ask what my f- sort of favorite gig of all time was I, I sort of often cite that because it's just a I like kind of the idea that it's something relatively new that um the the, the, the the you know not just kind of harking back to stuff in the 90s but that was <laughs> a really exciting night actually it was a wonderful night and it to to to, to, to go away for seven years and to sort of come back and find that there was still quite a lot of love for us was was really nice which you sort of don't really know you kind of you you, you're never quite sure you're never quite sure if it's just just faded away and died you know so that was a lovely evening yeah can I ask as well um if you're willing to divulge what your most memorable or strange or extreme experiences of fandom were yourself you know um, I was reading through um your second book Afternoons the Blinds Drawn Mm. Um, in the last couple of days and um, um, we, when you all arrive at Jap- in Japan and um, Richard Oakes is fairly new to the band and there's all these fans with banners that say fuck us Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just hilarious because I don't think they knew what, they were, what they'd written on their banners. These two little tiny girls, they, 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 you know, these tiny little sweet little girls with these enormous banners with fuck us written on it. That was one of the uh, uh, hilarious and bizarre moments. Um, I don't know, lots of things, lots of things. You know, I've I've sort of been kind of hounded out of houses before by kind of obsessive fans and, you know, kind of kind of hate campaigns and things like that. So there have been lots of kind of dark sides to it. I don't know what's the most extraordinary thing. I think in a funny sort of way, when I see the, the, the hardcore fan base that are there night after night and that travel mile after mile, and 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 aren't rich. They just have normal jobs and they have families, 
which they which they somehow managed to juggle. And and when I think about the reality of that, what they actually the kind of the, the hardship they endure in order to sort of go through this, it's a kind of really humbling thing. And, and I think that's an extraordinary thing in itself. Actually, you know, it's not it's not as it's not as kind of as interesting as, as little anecdotes like the, the fuck ass Richards of anecdote, but it's kind of, it is, it is a fascinating dynamic that, that, that people still have that passion. And that's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I've written quite a lot of songs about, uh, that the band fa- mm. dynamic before. Um, uh, and there's a new song on, 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 on auto fiction called what am I without you? And it's very much a love song to, to, to the fans. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a sort of recognition that without fans, the, a, a band simply can't exist. It's like a, a boat can't float without a sea. You know, they're 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 part of the necessary mechanics to that we're all we're all we're all doing a job together, kind of thing. It's interesting saying about you know, but, you know the, the people who give up so much of their lives to follow you, you know, which is quite extreme, you know, it's very extreme, yeah. but um, these, you know, reading this book, I'm guessing you're seeing other people's experiences of doing the same thing with other artists. You know, there's, yeah. there's a woman at some point, I think she might be one of the many Barry Manilow fans who yes. gets a job, you know, um, selling coupons and she sells 5,000 and that's enough to buy one ticket. You know, this. I know it's extraordinary, isn't it? But there's, I think there's, I I, I think so going into this quite a bit in my head, I think there's, there's also a, there's a sort of badge of honor, I think amongst some fans, if, 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 when, you know, when they, when they do these extreme things, when they queue for hours and hours and hours and don't, and, and get to the front of the queue. And there's a kind of, there's almost a sort of, there's a there's a kind of a cultish element to it isn't there i think and if you dedicate your you know scrimp and scrape and 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 do do these things then then i suppose in a way you're uh, you're more of a fan in, in 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 fan circles and i suppose that that's a, that's a motivation in itself not to kind of diminish it in any way but that maybe that's a that's the sort of psych, psychological motivation for it within the sort of like fan circles but just to get your thing being on tour did did make me really and, and reading this book did make me really kind of see the the, the, the little tribes of obsessives. It, it did really sort of make them see them. I was more easy. It was easier to see them as real people. And it's not like I ever dismiss them as something other than real people. I don't mean that at all. But it kind of it made me kind of like go into their heads and and, and wonder about their personal journeys and. and why why they've why they've ended up as uh, in you know being obsessive fans and it's mm. you know I'd, I'd never look down on that at all i think it's a wonderful thing no definitely it's a really fascinating book um as you say lots of very different experiences mm. but uh a proper um trawl through the murk of <laughs> fans it's 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 a it's quite unusual it's it's the sort of book that in a way needs to be kind of rewritten and rewritten I'd, I'd like to sort of see a version of it for for um for 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 you know contemporary times there, there was a kind of a, a golden age of pop wasn't there you know in the 80s and this is reflecting that and it would be interesting to see similar kind of accounts of different eras and see how they, see if that see if there was a different relationship between the fans and and the artists sort of thing. I wonder what one written in the noughties would be like do you know what I mean that would be kind yeah. of quite interesting to and to sort of map them and and sort of you know 
So I think someone else, someone should write a new version of this, you know. Yeah. You know, these days, obviously, how social media kind of amplifies fandom and, you know, people can speak straight to their fans. You know, it yeah. changes it completely. Yeah, I'm. Um, it's funny seeing friends with teenagers um, getting as excited about artists as I did as a teenager, yeah. but they're communicating with them with a very different way. You know, they're watching TikToks of Billie Eilish or... You know, meet them meeting fans online, actually, which mm. I didn't get to do. And, you know, you didn't get to do either. They're no. building these connections. Yeah, that adds a completely different, another element to it, doesn't it? Yeah, the yeah absolutely. The accessibility. That, and that's really interesting because in, in my head, I've got a very sort of old fashioned sort of model of what it, what it is to be a quote unquote pop star. And part, part of that model involves um, a certain element of aloofness. Yeah, where, where where that's necessary. The, the mystique is part of the call, you know. And as soon as you erode that too much, it's you you lose something. So I'm I'm very aware of when when the whole kind of social media thing happened and the whole kind of like um, MySpace thing happened twenty years ago and all that sort of stuff. And suddenly suddenly fans were able to have much more access to 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 the people that they whose music they liked. I was I was always a little bit wary of that instinctively because i thought i thought it eroded something so you're not going to go on a big um viral tiktok campaign for the new it's album but <laughs> <laughs> you it's never just... know you know kate bush has come back you know and with the with the youngsters yeah. maybe swayed to her next yeah. <laughs> oh, so there you go that was fred and judy vomerell's starlust um most recently published by faber as part of the faber find series in 2011 credited to fred um how would you sum it up, Brett? If somebody said to you, "Should I read this book?" How would you sum it up to them? Well, like I said, I, I found it fascinating, <laughs> equally fascinating, and sometimes mundane. It's it's almost like a it's almost like a sort of. I think it's a really really good book to read um, if you're if, if you're in if you've got any any interest in music and fandom and any of those things. It's a fascinating book. Um, I, I quite like the way you can sort of dip in and out of it as well. I don't know yeah. if that's a recommendation or not, but it's just a fact. It's sort of like, you know, you can sort of like pick it up and kind of like go and then go to somewhere else sort of thing. It's like it's a, it had a kind of magazine-like quality like that. Um, so it's difficult to really sort of like kind of compare it to sort of a normal book with a narrative and stuff like that because it doesn't have those things. It's a different kind of beast, you know. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. I really enjoyed, I'm glad I read it. Yeah, there was a book that um, Fred wrote later that was more of a study of fans in general, but this is the one that um, everyone remembers, probably because of the uh, details of um, members of the jam in public toilets. But we'll um, leave that for the readers to find out themselves. Yeah. Um, now, as we come to the end of our podcasts, it'd be great to hear a few recommendations from you, Brett. Um, are there any other books about music that um, you would recommend to us that are worth buying and reading? Well. Um... I really liked um, the Patty Smith book. The uh, was it called Just Kids? Just Kids, yeah. Yeah, that that was really good. It wasn't your average rock star autobiography. It kind of had a little bit more, a little bit more richness, and um, I really liked that. I loved No Blacks, No Irish, No Dogs by John Lydon. Um, even though I think it was ghost written, which I was slightly disappointed by, but his voice is just so vital and you know he's an amazing artist um and without being an asker so i really like your book jude actually oh thank you well, 
um, I thought it was a really great mixture of the personal and the and the and the analytical, and uh, I recommend that. Did you read that on tour as well? I did, yeah. It's quite quite good reading music books when you're on tour. It's kind of like like you know the same sort of thing of reading you know books set in sunny places when you're on holiday. It sort of yeah. like rhymes with what you're doing quite nicely. Takes you away. And I have to say to the listeners, I did not ask Brett to say that. I promise. And I haven't paid him, you know, no. handed him over a wad of money across he our virtual yeah, collection. <laughs> maybe maybe later. I'll buy you a... amount of money. No, but yeah. I did enjoy it. So congratulations. Thank you. That's very kind of you. And finally, um, given that music is at the heart of this podcast, we'd like you to recommend a book song for us, um, a song that you love inspired by a work of literature, which we, I'm going to put together on a mm. playlist. What would you recommend? Okay, so the, the song that's that, that immediately sprang to mind was "The Sensual World" by Kate Bush. Oh yeah, um, which was inspired by James Joyce, James Joyce's Ulysses, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and this came out in about nineteen eighty nine or nineteen eighty eight. Yeah, like it was eighty nine. Yeah. And I think this is the first song that I was ever aware, and I, I love the song, but the first song that I was ever aware of being being directly inspired by. A piece of literature and I, I don't know really know how I found out I must have read about it or something like that um, uh, but not in a very direct way and I think lots of artists are, are inspired by literature uh, you know Morrissey for example kind of steals little bits of things everyone does it I, I've done it I've st- stolen bits of Lord Byron and things like that but oh the sensual world is, 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 is it's directly inspired by uh, James Joyce's Ulysses and I, th- I thought that was quite there was something quite sort of bold and proud about that and yeah. apart from the fact that the song's amazing so I'd go with that thank you so much Brett Anderson for digging into Starlust with us and being um, my guest on Songbook thank you so much Jude it's been a pleasure Thank you so much for listening to Songbook. You can find links to the books mentioned in this episode, as well as our Spotify playlist, in the episode description. Songbook is presented by me, Jude Rogers. It's produced by me and Alice Lloyd. It's edited and mixed by Dan Jones, and our music is by the one and only David Holmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>